Welcome back, Donuts. Welcome to another episode of Fried Dough, your weekly fix of true crime. And I'm your girl, Gina. Okay, and real quick, when I finish recording, I always listen to it on my way to work. I proof listen on my way to work. And I did that twice last week. And do you know that I'm realizing that I didn't even introduce myself last time? I'm not sure what's going on with all of these people in my head, but at least one of y'all could have caught that. I mean, for real, we're just going to have to have a staff meeting after this. I'm going to have to send out some memos because somebody dropped the ball here. We're going to move on. Okay, Donuts, this case has so many moving parts. I'm going to try my hardest to keep everything straight and clear and give you all of the meat and potatoes of it. And if you heard that in the background, that's just my fur baby cane shaking it off. I read three books on this episode. And like I said, it's so much of it. I'm just going to try to pull as much of it out as I can into like a 40 minute episode. I don't want to keep y'all here long. So last month I had a theme going since it was Pride Month and I asked, do you think I should continue doing these things? And a few of y'all said that I really should do it. They enjoyed it. So fine. So I decided I should do the same thing this month. So with that, this month is going to be a family affair month. And that means that every episode in this month is going to have something horrible to do with you know, within the family. Every story, every crime story touches a family, but this is going to be a little bit close-knit of a family. So I want y'all to let me know how y'all think about this. But until then, always, 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 I want to remind listeners that the stories that I cover on this podcast may be difficult to hear. However, it is very important to shine a light on these cases and remember the victims who were affected. This episode actually was suggested to me on social media. I'm not sure if she would want me to say her name. So this is Fried Dough True Crime Podcast. And this is the story of the Menendez murder, a tale of wealth, abuse, and controversy. On the night of August 20th, 1989, just before 10 p.m., Kitty and Jose Menendez were unwinding after dinner, watching TV in the family room of their Beverly Hills home. It was the maid's night out, and their sons, Lyle, 21, and Eric, 18, were at the movies, so Kitty and Jose were enjoying their solitude. And then they were dead. The Menendez family appeared to have it all an affluent lifestyle, an elegant mansion in Beverly Hills, and seemingly a perfect life. However, beneath the surface lies a tale of betrayal, deception, and a brutal crime that shocked the nation. Okay, let's begin by introducing all of the members of the Menendez family. There was Jose Menendez, a successful entertainment executive. He was the patriarch of the family. He was the father. He worked as a top executive for a live entertainment and had achieved considerable success. His wife, Mary Louise Menendez, they called her Kitty, was a loving mother and dedicated homemaker. Lyle Menendez, the older brother, was seen as the more responsible one with the ambition of pursuing a career of film production. And Eric Menendez, the younger son who was a charismatic and talented tennis player. 
Together, they presented an image of a picture-perfect family. Jose Enrique Menendez was born May 6, 1944, in Havana, Cuba. At age 16, shortly after the start of the Cuban Revolution, he moved to the United States. Jose attended South Illinois University, where he met Kitty Anderson. Kitty was born Mary Louise Anderson on October 14, 1941, in Oak Law, Illinois, as the youngest child and younger daughter of Charles Milton Anderson and May Helen Anderson, she had an older sister named Joan and two older brothers named Milton and Brian. Her father was an Army veteran who owned his own air conditioning and heating business, and her mother worked at an airport. They married in 1963 and moved to New York City, where Jose earned an accounting degree from Queens College. The couple's first son, Joseph Lyle, who goes by his middle name, was born January 10th, 1968 in New York. Kitty then quit her teaching job after Lyle was born and the family moved to New Jersey, where Eric Gallen was born November 27, 1970 in Gloucester Township in New Jersey. The family then moved to Hopewell Township and the both brothers attended Princeton Day School. Jose did not believe in discipline his children. He would say, there's no need to discipline the kids. They'll figure it out when they get older. I guess since they're on this true crime podcast on a segment called Family Affairs, they figure things out. And one day, Kitty went shopping at the mall with the boys and her sister-in-law, Jose's sister. And the boys got lost, and Kitty really didn't care too much about it. After a few minutes, they heard on the loudspeaker that, Kitty Menendez, your boys is in security. Kitty turned to her sister-in-law and said, Oh, good. Now we know where they are. Let's continue shopping. It wasn't until 45 minutes later, Kitty went to go pick up the kids. In the summer of 1976, Lyle and Eric's cousin, Diane Moulton, came to stay with them. She claims that Lyle confessed to her that he was being sexually assaulted by his father. Diane told Kitty, but Kitty sided with her husband and said Lyle was lying. Diane recalled that afterwards, Kitty put Lyle upstairs, and that was the last Diane ever heard of anything about it. In 1986, Jose's career as a corporate executive took the family to Beverly Hills, California. The following year, Eric attended Beverly Hills High School, where he earned average grades, but displayed a remarkable talent for tennis, ranking 44th in the United States as a junior. But on the faithful night of August 20th, 1989, everything changed. In a horrifying act of violence, Jose and Kitty Menendez were brutally murdered in their own homes. The details of the crime was shocking and deeply disturbing. So I go to tell my mother, we're going to leave. We're going to the movies. I got plans. She goes, no, you, she, she gets real nervous. Tells me, no, you, you can't go. And I said, why? And she said, and she couldn't answer me. She just said, uh, you just can't, you can't go to the house tonight, you guys, it's too late. And uh, my dad came storming through him to the kitchen, pulled her aside, and just told me, told my brother actually, because for some reason he ends up standing next to me, told him, go upstairs and wait for me. And, uh, and my, I looked at my brother, and I said, no, you're not touching my brother, and we got 
said, oh, man. And my, bro and my dad, my mother came out and started saying something to me, and then I, my dad pulled her away and, and said, come on, kitty, let's go in the room. And just looked at me, and then he just and he closed the doors to the den. And you don't know my house too well, but you're not supposed to close the doors to that room. He closed the doors to that room. And, uh, I mean, I can't describe it too well, but essentially I just panicked. And I just said, you know, something's going on in the room. They've been waiting for my brother to get home. That's all this is. And they've been waiting. And I've been sitting here saying, Doc, and they've been waiting for Eric to come home. He is coming home late and was fucking up their plans a little bit. And so I ran upstairs to Eric and I said, you know, it's going down now. And, and I didn't even think about running. I just said, I'm getting my gun and I'm going in. On the evening of August 20th, 1989, Jose and Kitty were sitting in the living room of their Beverly Hills mansion watching a James Bond movie, The Spy Who Loved Me, when just after 10 p.m., two people had burst into the Menendez family room through the double doors located off the foyer and began to fire in 12-gauge Mossberg shotgun. One of the intruders walked around the back of the couch put the barrel of the massive gun to the back of Joseph's head and pulled the trigger. Kitty jumped up and she tried to run, but they shot her in her leg. So she fell down, and while she was trying to crawl away, she turned over and she saw a shotgun pointed right to her face. They placed the shotgun barrel right to Kitty's jaw and fired. Jose was shot six times, including the fatal shot in the back of the head with a Mossberg 20-gauge shotgun. Kitty was shot the total of 10 times. Before the fatal shot to her cheek, she was on the ground slowly crawling and moaning. Lyle then ran to his car to reload and then came back and fired the fatal shot to her face. Every bone in Kitty's face was ripped apart. Immediately after killing both parents, all of the shotgun shells were collected. Both of the boys remained in the house expecting the police to respond due to the noise of the shotgun. During the time, they decided to come up with an alibi, so they decided to go to the movies. All along, while the bodies of their parents were lying dead in their home. They returned back to the house and realized still no one has called the 911, so they decided to come up with a story, and they called 911 themselves. What's the problem? What's the problem? What's the problem? Someone killed my parents. Pardon me? Someone killed my parents. What? Who? Are they still there? Yeah. The people? What? No, no, no. Were they shot? Hey, man, too. Uh, were they shot? Yes. They were shot? Yes. What happened? Eric. 
Let me, let, who was the person that was shot? My mom and my dad. Your mom and dad? My mom and my dad. Okay, hold on a second. <laughs> okay, we're on our way over there with an the ambulance. Okay, I gotta go. <laughs> okay. Hello. Hello, this is the police department. Yes. Okay, I want you to come outside. <laughs> When the police arrived, the brothers told them that the killings had occurred while they were out watching a movie at the theater, seeing Batman, and attending the Taste of L.A. festival at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. They said they entered the home and smelled and saw smoke. Then they saw their parents and called 911. Veteran homicide investigators says that the average person will walk into a home and discover two brutally murdered bodies would run outside immediately and call 911 from another location. Most people are afraid the killer might still be in the home. Officer Maurice Angel was assigned to keep an eye on the boys that night. Officer Angel said he watched while Eric would ram his head a few times up against a tree and then try to run back inside. While Eric was doing all of this, he was saying things such as, I'm going to kill him, I'm going to torture him, and we're going to get these guys. But Lyle was able to restrain his brother. The police did not see gunshot residue tests from the brothers, which would have indicated whether they had recently discharged a firearm. In the next months after the killing, the brothers began to spend extravagant amount of money on luxurious items, businesses, and travel. Lyle bought a Chuck Spring Street Cafe, a Buffalo Wing restaurant in Princeton, New Jersey, as well as a Rolex watch and a Porsche Seria. And I know I said that wrong, but baby, I'm on the Buick Ford and Toyota level. Eric hired a full-time tennis coach and spent $60,000 on that and completed in a series of tournaments in Israel. The brothers eventually left the Beverly Hills mansion unoccupied choosing to live in adjacent condominiums in nearby Marina del Rey. At this time, they found out two things. One, that Jose never got around to changing his will like he threatened earlier and taking them out of his will. And two, they were the beneficiaries of the life insurance and they received $250,000 apiece. They also dined expensively and went on overseas trips to the Caribbeans and London. They collectively spent approximately $700,000 before their arrest. Family members later disputed the connection between their spending and the murders of their parents, claiming that there were no changes in their spending habits after the killing. On August 25th, 1989, Jose Menendez and Kitty Menendez was laid to rest at Princeton Cemetery in Mercer County, New Jersey. Eric totally fell apart at the funeral. Lyle, he gave a one-hour eulogy, saying that his father would want him to keep it together, and he would want the family not to mourn. At one point, they attended the New York Knicks basketball game, which they became immortalized when they actually appeared courtside in the background of a Mark Jackson trading card. And I'm going to post that on Instagram. During the early stages of the investigation, the police tried to narrow their search to suspects who had motives to kill Jose and Kitty. Police looked into possible mob 
disgruntled co-workers or business association who could have done this during the investigation they found out jose had not just one but two side bitches i mean two affairs one named megan who was a booking agent and the other was named charlotte who was a corporate executive in her 40s and kitty found out about her megan she called it off because she said that jose was too controlling they ruled out that it was a murder suicide even after talking to edwin cox kitty's therapist saying that she was suicidal and depended on alcohol and drank daily the brothers were arrested when their spending got out of hand and one of the brothers eric admitted the slaying to his shrink jerry ozeal the beverly hills psychiatrist eric was really feeling remorseful or he was mourning for his parents so on tuesday october 31st 1989 eric went to see jerry ozeal and after about an hour he told him he wanted to take a walk so they left the office and on the way back before entering back into the building eric stepped away and said we did it ozeal said what what do you mean you killed your parents eric said yes after they left that day jerry ozeal was very scared so he called his wife and he told his wife to leave the house and just lie to the kids about it being a gas leak or whatever jerry ozeal said that he was so afraid to go back home or go back to his wife and kids he decided to go to his girlfriend's house judeline smith i told y'all there's a lot of pieces in this case and i'm trying to keep them straight child so on November 2nd, 1989, Dr. Ozil told the boys when they came to visit him again that he placed three notes in safety deposit boxes and if anything was to happen to him, those notes go to the police. After telling the brothers that, Lyle responded to Dr. Ozil by saying, you're right to feel threatened. Dr. Ozil replied, I don't feel threatened. And Lyle said, my father didn't either. After that, they just had a staring contest and stared each other down until Dr. Ozil broke eye contact and went on with the session. During the November 2nd session, it's argued that Lyle was thinking about killing Dr. Ozil. Eric told Lyle that I can't stop you from doing what you're going to do, but I can't do any more killing anymore. Lyle decided not to kill Ozeal because it was too close after their parents dying and he was afraid that they would be looked at. So instead, they gave him a full confession, thinking that it, it was doctor-client privilege and he wouldn't be able to tell anybody anyway. And what he did was take the confessions. Lyle later said that he knew they were being taken because he hit the record on the machine. So during this session, before the brothers got there, Ozeal called his side bitch, I mean his girlfriend, and told her to come sit in the waiting room and listen to what was going on just in case it was a fight because he claimed that he was afraid of the boys. So a few weeks after this meeting, Judeline Smith, she called Ozeal and told him that she was afraid. So Ozeal, I don't know how the hell he did this, but Ozeal asked his wife if Judeline Smith can come and stay with them for a while. 
So now Ozil is living with his girlfriend, his wife, and his two children. And at one point in time, his daughter claimed that she saw him in bed in the maid's room with Judeline Smith. During the time Judeline was staying with them, she borrowed $5,000 from them. So now it's just a whole thing about that. They were supposed to made her sign a promissory note saying that she was going to pay it back, but she claimed that she was drugged and forced to sign the letter, whatever. But here's the thing. Judeline Smith, they put Judeline Smith out. Judeline Smith is pissed off. So now she goes to the police. Now the police know that there are tapes of the brothers confessing and now it's a fight to try to get these tapes and now they got to call Ozil to trial because they didn't know about all of this at the time and he wasn't saying nothing about it. So on March 8, 1990, Lyle Menendez was arrested in Los Angeles, California. At that time, Eric Menendez was still in Israel in a tennis tournament. Once he found out, he arranged through his lawyer at that time that he was going to surrender in Los Angeles, California. Eric left Israel and made it to Los Angeles, California, March 11, 1990, and turned himself in. Later, Eric was a little upset with his attorney because his attorney did not advise him to turn himself in in London. Death would have never been on the table as a condition for the extradition from London. For Eric. I bet you Eric is kicking himself every day for that. So now the boys had to create a defense on why they killed their parents. And this is where all kind of secrets came out. Six weeks before she was murdered, Kitty Menendez told her, her psychotherapist, Lester Summerfield, that she was hiding a sick and embarrassing secret about her family. She was concerned that her sons might be psychopaths. From tales of abuse, molestation, and suicidal thoughts, everything was just coming out about this quote-unquote tight-knit family. Based on Lyle and Eric's testimony and interviews that they've had, on the evening of Tuesday, August 15, 1989, in their home, in the den where Jose and Kitty were murdered, Lyle and Kitty got into an argument. Kitty did what she usually do, and that's explode and start screaming in rage and subsequently ripping off Lyle's toupee. Lyle suffered from premature baldness, and his hair started thinning at the age of 18 years old. And Jose made him get a toupee, telling him that if he was going to run for some sort of Senate seat, then he needed a full head of hair. So Lyle had to shave his whole head and put on super solvent glue on his scalp so his toupee can stick. So while he cried out, Kenny raged about the $1,500 it had cost him to get it done. When she took it off, he thought that she would take it away permanently, but instead she threw it back at him, telling him, you don't need this. At that time, he already had it for two whole years. So after the Kitty and Lyle argument, her ripping off his toupee, he runs to the room. Eric had no idea that Lyle had a toupee. So Eric runs after Lyle to comfort his brother. And while they're in there, they're talking, they're discussing things. And that's when Eric tells Lyle that Jose was still molesting him. 
So now Lyle feels that he needs to protect his brother. So he confronts Jose. He tells Jose that it has to stop or he's going to tell everybody. Lyle says that Jose responds, you're going to tell people anyway. So after that, Jose started planning a fishing trip for the family to go on. And the brothers thought that this was the trip that they were going to try to kill them. And the fishing trip was supposed to be on the next day. And Lyle was wondering, why are we going on a family fishing trip if we're in the middle of a family crisis? And that's when he put two and two together and he started realizing slash thinking that this is the trip that they're going to try to kill them on this trip some kind of way. So before the trip, they had to kill their parents. And Jose and Kitty Menendez, they went into the living room slash den and they closed the door. Lyle was like, this is it. They're planning on killing us. We got to go and get our shotguns that they bought. They bought the shotguns under a fake ID because in California, you had a two week waiting period to buy a handgun and shot. So they go and get the shotguns and they go and shoot their parents. The Menendez trial became a national sensation when Court TV broadcast the trial in 1993. The allegations for child molestation was supported by two family members during their testimonies. The brother's cousin, Andy Canoe, said that as a child, he was told by Eric about the sexual abuse, which they both described as penis massaging. And we already know about Diane Moden running to Kitty and Kitty just ignored it. The first trial ended in a deadlock jury, but during the second trial, the, the brothers were eventually convicted on two counts of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. The jury said that the abuse defense was not a factor in the deliberation, but decided not to impose on the death penalty because both brothers had no criminal record or history of violence prior to the murder. So as of the pretrial detention, the California Department of Correctional separated the brothers and sent them to different prisons. Since they were considered to be maximum security inmates, they were segregated from other prisoners. They remained in separate prisons until February 2018 when Lyle was moved to Mole Creek State Prison in Northern California. On April 4, 2018, Lyle was moved into the same housing as Eric reuniting them for the first time since they had been serving their sentence nearly 22 years earlier. The brothers burst into tears and hugged each other at their first meeting in the housing unit. The unit where they were housed reserved for inmates who agreed to participate in education and rehabilitating programs without creating disruption. In May 2023, the boys filed documents seeking a new hearing based on the newly discovered evidence purportedly to show that their father had also molested boy band member Roy Rossello. On Tuesday, April 18th, 2023, on a segment of the Today Show about an upcoming docuseries, Roy stated that he had been drugged and raped by Jose Menendez when he was visiting their New Jersey home at the age of 14 years old. Roy Rossello is speaking out about the abuse he said he endured at the hands of Jose Menendez, father of the convicted murderers Eric and Lyle Menendez. Roy's allegations are the center of the three-part Peacock documentary, 
Menendez Menudo boy betrayed, revealing the, the ties that the late Jose Menendez had to the Latin pop group in the 1980s. During this time, Rossello claimed that he was sexually abused by Jose. Before leaving Menudo in 1986, Roy said he was raped by Jose Menendez at the RCA executive home in New Jersey, where he was told he'd be having dinner. I drank some wine. I didn't drink wine. I was 13 years old, Roy said. But that day, Jose Menendez told me, drink the wine because it's amazing and it's very expensive. Drink the whole glass. So I drank it all. After I drank the wine, I started to feel tired and heavy. I couldn't move anymore. From that point on, everything looked blurry. He recalled in the documentary that when he woke up, he was in a hotel room. And that is when he said he realized he had been raped. I can barely stand the pain. I couldn't even move, Roy said. In conclusion, the Menendez murders were a highly publicized case that involved the brutal killing of Jose and Kitty Menendez. Their trial and subsequent conviction brought attention to the issue of abuse, wealth, and self-defense. While the jury found the brothers guilty and they were sentenced to life in prison, the case continued to generate debate and fascinate, highlighting the complex dynamic of a family relationship and the limits of justice. Oh my goodness, now that was the Menendez murder. That It is so much more on this case. I read three books on this. It's so many mitigating circumstances in this case, from Jose molesting the boys to Eric attending UCLA under Jose's demand, Jose making fun of Lyle's stutter when he was small, calling him the F word, and Kitty making Lyle touch her, and allowing the brothers to be molested by Jose. Like, they said that she knew it, and they found out that she knew it that night. Were they scared, and is that a reason to do these murders? I don't know, but whatever side you believe in, there is something going on in that house, and it wasn't something normal. I'm just glad I wasn't on either jury because I have reasonable doubt for both sides. I could stand on the line and go back and forth all day. And that's what I did reading these books. I was going back and forth. So what do you think? Do you think the brothers were really molested or was it for money? Oh, and before I go, let's just look at these numbers. During the trial, they called 405 exhibits, over 101 witnesses, it took 85 days of testimony. It was 20 weeks long and they had two juries. So if you enjoyed this episode and you want to continue to talk about it or you want to add something that I left out, don't hesitate to connect with the podcast on Instagram and Twitter. And you can email me. All of the links are in the show notes. Make sure you let me know that you want your name to be mentioned or not. You can also leave a voicemail by clicking the link in the show notes. And if you leave a voice message, it's a chance that it'll show up on the next episode. If you're new here, hit that subscribe button below. That'll ensure you to get every episode as they drop. This week's missing person is Ryan Perez. Ryan is 15 years old, a male, black hair, brown eyes, he stands five foot five. He weighs 150 pounds. Ryan was last seen in Columbus, Ohio on May 17, 2023.
If anyone has any information regarding the whereabouts of Ryan, please contact the Special Victims Unit at 614-525-3555 or you can contact Crime Stoppers at 614-645-4749 or you can visit the website www.p3tips.com. All of that is going to be on the show notes. Let's bring Ryan home to his family. And as always, stay safe, stay vigilant, and always, always, always trust your instincts.